as the CEO, you have to really learn and understand um, that this is a full-time job for a paid position for someone, a professional, but it's your role to, to come in and learn and really understand it. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how they grew from 150 pounds per month to 9,000 pounds per month on ads, what changes they made to their site to improve their product's perceived value, and how to sell a product when the buyer is a parent and the end user is their child. Today I'm joined by Lou Matera from Youth Sport Nutrition. Youth Sport Nutrition is the developer of Protein, the world's first and only fortified recovery shake for active youths in sport and is on a mission to eliminate youth athlete undernourishment and was started in 2015. Welcome, Lou. Hi, Felix. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your goal, like many out there, was to escape your 9 to 5. So was this your first attempt at starting a business to do that? Yeah, it was, actually. Um, it's something that I've wanted to do for, for quite a while, but... Um, it's a kind of a lot of a lot of um, external factors that kind of aligned that allowed me to step into entrepreneurship. But um, it's uh, I'm sure as, as you and a lot of your listeners know, it's it's not an easy path, um, and it's one that you're constantly learning. Um, I think it's <laughs> ironic to be on the uh, Shopify Masters as uh, we're by no means uh, masters at uh, at the trade yet, but um, it's one of the things you, you learn as you go and you get better. Definitely. So have you been successful in being able to jump in full-time into your business at this point? Uh, I have, yes. Um, I've been doing so probably for about two years now. Got it. Now, for anyone out there that's contemplating doing the same thing, how prepared were you before you made that, that leap? Did you already have youth sport nutrition running? Like how much, how ready were you to, to make that leap into, into business full-time? Uh, so good question. Um, if I'm honest with you, I kind of took the plunge um, quite quite quickly. But I think that the good part about that was that it kind of put a lot of external pressure on me to deliver. Um, I think at the time when I quit my my corporate job, um, obviously the lifestyle, obviously having a car, nice nice flat, and obviously out on the weekends, it it, uh, it, it cost a lot. So obviously uh, having that income stream stopping. Um, it kind of got the ball rolling a lot quicker, got um, kind of a lot of pressure on me to, to be able to put things together, move things forward. Um, and also, because uh, basically, the, if you look at it, I don't know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, the, the base of needs were still, still weren't covered. So I needed to find something to keep my head above water um, and ideally find a way to, to merge passion and profession. Makes sense. So what did you have to do? What did you have to um, prepare during this transition? Did you have to like move to a cheaper place? Did you have to obviously cut back on spending? Like how, looking back on it, what did you do? Or maybe what would you do you think that you recommend other people do as well if they are preparing to make this leap from, you know, getting that, that weekly or biweekly paycheck to basically eat what you kill? First and foremost, I probably wouldn't recommend doing what, what I did. Um, so I basically took a, took a leap. Um, Richard Branson-esque and kind of build a build a parachute or build a plane on the way down um, and left. I think if uh, if I was to give advice to, to upcoming entrepreneurs who are wanting to do the same, I would say work your trade, work, um, obviously utilize your time efficiently. So obviously getting up early mornings, um, obviously doing your, your, your nine to five grind and then coming back, working evenings and, and setting the groundwork. And then ideally, 
um, obviously keep putting the time in so that one stream of revenue then overcomes the need to have to work full time. Makes sense. What do you think or how do you think jumping in full time like that, how do you think it hurt your your business or your decisions that you made in your business by going in full time? Because you mentioned like you have some reservations about recommend other people following in your path. Like, what, what, what harm was done by jumping in like that? Well, it's, um, it obviously puts a lot of pressure on you because you need to find some so- source of income and uh, obviously setting up your own business. You, you, you're basically finding your way in the dark. You don't know what works. Um, obviously, never being an entrepreneur before as well, um, it's very multifaceted. It's not something that you, uh, you, you can kind of prepare for because you've got to wear so many hats um, doing different sort of things throughout the day and that changes pretty much hourly. Um, it's not something that, that you, you get the experience to do um, when you're in a nine-to-five because when you're in a job, you're there generally fulfilling um, one specific or two or three specific tasks. You don't have um, the digital element, to, sorry, the digital marketing element. You don't have staff to manage. You don't have outsourcers to, uh, to liaise and to coordinate. Um, and obviously a, a big thing is on the back of that, when you're in a job, you've obviously got some sort of guaranteed income. Um, obviously when you, you, you've taken the jump you've taken the leap into entrepreneurship you don't have that um, which is why I would definitely recommend for, for others not necessarily to copy me and uh, to, to, to ideally have uh, have a safety net but I think with myself not having that safety net um, it did give me a lot of external motivation to get things done and get things moving quickly um, I think the, the problems that, that we came up with is that in the manufacturing industry, you're, you're very much dependent on, on others doing the roles for you because um, obviously we have a commodity, a product um, that we don't physically manufacture, we outsource it. Um, and again, being a small brand, being a new startup and coming up with the, with a concept that still has never been brought to market, um, it, t- it took far longer than we thought. Um, to, to bring it from idea stage into uh, into reality, so obviously you've got a you've got a lag time there. But um, again, for us, it took just over two years. So obviously, I took the leap out of my my corporate job, which is full time, and I had to find part time work in order just to keep my head above water. But again, it was very much about being very efficient. Um, obviously, cutting back your uh, your, your lifestyle. Um, again, taking part-time job what I did is actually I, I uh, ended up being a carer for my granddad who suffered from Alzheimer's um, and I've done that um, pretty much all all uh, all through up until some of this year when he unfortunately passed away but what it did is it allowed me the breathing space um, to uh, to obviously just channel the majority of my energy into the business um, obviously into learning and development and obviously putting the product together and learning the trade. God. And just kind of give people out there a, a quick recap of the product that you you came up with. Like, what was the landscape like? What what other existing products are already out there, and how was yours different? So it, we uh, we're in the uh, in the sports nutrition um, industry, um, but what we did is we uh, developed the world's first fortified recovery shake for active youth. So what it does, it's there to support their macro and micronutrient needs. Um, what it is in a nutshell, it's it's kind of specifically developed with relevant, uh, sorry, relative amounts of wholesome nutrients. So they've got the fats, proteins, the carbs, and 60, 16 essential micronutrients. And what it's there for, it's designed to replace their most inconvenient meal after training. So when whole food isn't available, um, or in a lot of cases, it's there to counter selective eating habits. 
um, the, the key differentiator between our product and, and say a mass market um, variant is that ours is um, very very specifically developed and tailored to uh, to youths. Um, so obviously they've got different needs to adults and different needs to say babies, kind of that in between phase. Um, and we work with elite athletes or at least active youths so or those who participate in high level sports. So they've got quite a lot of commitment. Um, from from a training load uh, and obviously from the matches as well. Um, ideally, they would have food ready made, obviously carrying with with them as and when they needed. But they're, they're very they're reliant on their parents. Obviously, parents have got busy lives, full time jobs. They've got the commute. They're obviously away from the kitchen as well when they're uh, when they're at their, their training ground uh, or training facilities. And what they would tend to do is generally just grab. Um, food on the go um, at a gas station or from a vending machine which would generally be kind of chocolate crisps vending machine um, kind of energy drinks that sort of thing which really doesn't fit in alignment with their, with their goals or objectives um, so the nutritional profile that, that we put together is basically based on the common nutritional deficiencies and also the heightened need for specific nutrients to support them through rapid periods of growth so who who's um who's buying this? Is it the teenagers or their parents? Or who is the actual customer that's making the purchase? Yeah, this is this is another uh, not so much a barrier to entry for us, but it uh, it makes things difficult because obviously the end user of our products are our youths, um, but our market and who obviously has the purchasing power are parents. So our marketing um, is very much uh, very much parent led. Um, obviously, there's uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of regulations around actually marketing the youth as well from an ethical standpoint. Um, so it fits quite well for us to actually directly market the parents. And it's generally those who have the problems because they can't get their kids to eat right. Obviously, they've got a lot of um, they've got a lot of pressures on them. They haven't got much time. And then a big thing is that they don't generally have the education um, around nutrition to be able to put together wholesome meals. So this kind of fills the, uh, fills the gap quite nicely for them. Right. So, how do you know what ad copy or creatives, and we'll get into your your kind of your paid marketing strategy in a little bit. But just in general, how do you know what the marketing message should be when you are marketing to to the parents or someone that is not the actual end user? Yeah, I think it's very much around meeting them. So, kind of designing and developing the ad copy to meet their needs and their values. Um, so, the the way that the the product's positioned is it's not, again you think mass market supplements or, or uh, meal replacements it's all about big strong muscly guys or really skinny girls and obviously there's an ethical component to that um and uh, i think typically it's always been guided towards either babies or kind of infant formula bodybuilders um where you've got the association with kind of steroids large big muscly men um and reality the product itself all it is is just a convenient source of nutrients um, so it's about communicating that message, getting over the stereotype and really hammering home that this product, it's not going to make them bigger. It's not going to make them fitter. It's not going to make them faster. That's what they do the training for. What this product does is it ensures that as an absolute minimum, um, they have what they need nutritionally to support their recovery, health and normal development where, um, as I said, selective eating, um, obviously lack of time um, or just going for, for convenient junk food wouldn't wouldn't fit the bill. Did you know that, that that was the right messaging right after bad, or did you what did you have to do to learn what the marketing message should be? I think um, 
it's a, a combination of, of a lot of things but first and foremost I would say it's it's a b testing um trialing and understanding what it is from a parent's perspective so we did quite a lot of case studies um in the early days because we've never had a marketing budget we spent a lot of time speaking to parents so trying to understand what their values are what they're looking for what their struggles are and then obviously trying to put uh, put, put all of that together keep it concise um, into something that resonates with them something that they understand and obviously something that meets the the, the, the problem head-on Right. So now, now what do you have to take into consideration from the end user, the teens in this case, when it comes to marketing, especially when they don't have any of this purchasing power, like you, like you, you mentioned, like how much of their opinion matters and, and where does it matter? Um, I think it's very much, they're, they're very taste orientated. Again, that's part, part of the reason why they don't have a proper diet. They don't eat right. They don't like the taste of fruit. They don't like the taste of vegetables. So obviously getting that feedback from them and understanding that it's something that they enjoy. And I suppose there's a, there's a prestige element to it as well um, and kind of showing that they've got their nutrition catered for. Um, they're working with, with quite a cool new brand um, who's kind of working with them on their journey. Makes sense. Now, now, when it comes to developing the product that is both effective and uh, meets the taste of your, your end user, those teenagers, what, what's involved? Mm-hmm. Like, what's involved in developing a product like this? It's uh, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I think even from uh, if you just look at it from a raw manufacturing side of things, when we uh, when we first started, when I first started, um, I, I must have phoned fifty plus companies. Um, it's very difficult. No one wanted to take the risk. Um, obviously, I think that the concept itself is very much ahead of the innovation curve. It's obviously never been done before. It's a very niche market. Um, so I think from their side, if you're looking at new product development, it would have required a larger time commitment. Um, uh, obviously, when I, when I actually got to, to speak to one um, who we actually still work with to this day, um, what, what he said is that they get a lot of people, like tens every single week um, of people with just ideas. Obviously, they think they're flaky. Um, obviously, they're just looking for very small quantities, very low margins. Um, so it's a, it's a huge time constraint for for the manufacturers so they've got to kind of filter out those who aren't serious and those who actually might actually happen something new that might take off um and obviously it's very tricky to get a product to market that doesn't exist today um so a lot of the, the larger companies wouldn't uh, we wouldn't get any traction with we actually found a smaller manufacturer um who eventually we got to take a punt on us to to try our idea and it took as i said before uh, just under two years in R&D to bring the product to market. And one of the, the biggest barriers was the taste profile because obviously we've got specific amounts of nutrients that we need in to make the product effective. Um, so it's about putting all of that together and then st- still making it taste nice without adding E numbers, without obviously loading it full of sugar as well. So uh, what, what we did, um, obviously we got a couple of iterations of the product um, and we blind tested them with athletes or so young athletes themselves. Um, and we kind of picked the best three on the back of it, and we uh, we kind of followed a bit of common, not not so much common sense, but we we uh, we looked to kind of mass market. What are they actually using? What what are the options available for them? And we basically copied the uh, flavors or flavor variants that McDonald's milkshakes were offered in. So it's kind of vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate. Mm. Now, how do you do that balance between the effectiveness of the ingredients versus the the, the taste? Like, how do you know? How do, I guess how do you accomplish both things? Is it is it difficult, or is it has it been pretty pretty easy to to make sure you hit both uh, 
both factors? I'd say very difficult. Um, I think it's down to the expertise um, and the time put in in the product development by our manufacturers, to be fair, that we managed to get the profile right. Again, it took a lot of iterations and it took a lot of time to put it together. Um, again, there has to be a natural expectation from, from the end user, from, from the parent as well, that it is um, food in a powdered form. Um, so obviously it's not going to taste as good as a, a Sunday roast, but it's kind of helping them understand that this is actually um, almost nutritionally complete and it's going to fill a gap where, again, something's even as simple as a sandwich, which is obviously very carb-heavy, carb um, again, doesn't necessarily align with uh, with the athlete mentality, especially if you're taking it from vending machines. Um, it's kind of a lot of things all condensed into one. So even if it doesn't taste 100%, um, that they still know that it's it's packed full of good stuff that's actually going to help them and align with their goals. Mm. Now, when you were able to finally get the ear of a manufacturer to work with you, what do you think made your idea? What about your pitch? What were you saying that made them willing to to take on the, the investment of working with you on a brand new product? Um, I think um, I think myself, to be fair, because I've had the idea for quite some time. Um, and I scoured the market to see if there's anyone doing it already, um, if it was possible, obviously, if it was commercially viable as well. Um, so I think it's the fact that no one's obviously brought anything like this to market. Obviously, yes, it's a big risk for them, but it's also potentially quite lucrative if we can get it to take off. So I think they, they saw through that. They saw the drive and the passion from my side, and they, they took a punt based on that. When you jump, when you dove into starting your business full time, what did you spend your first thirty days focused on? Um, I would say it was very much around. Uh, there was a lot of things again. You know, uh, being being an entrepreneur, it's not it's it's multifaceted. You you have to learn a lot of different things. But I think first and foremost, for me, it was around ensuring that we can communicate and bring this product together. Obviously, make it commercially viable. Um, make it safe as well and make it something that adds value um, and then a lot of time centered and focused on how can we actually get this in front of our target audience um, what, are, what, are the, what are the schemes what are the tactics what work is it going to require um, where are we going to have to go what are we going to have to learn um, so it's very much kind of planning phase to be fair um, and a lot of that you don't actually find out what does or doesn't work until you've actually tried it failed, come up with a couple of different iterations and, and tried different things. So again, a lot of planning, I would say. Right. Speaking of the failures, were there any along the way that were that felt fatal at the time? Were any failures where you're like, we got to shut this thing down, I got to go back and find nine and five? Like, were there any out there that you can remember that, that made you really question if you made the right decision or not? Uh, I would say so. Say following launch, obviously it took us so long in uh, in, in R and D to actually put the product together. When it actually came down to launch, we again we've never had a marketing budget, and I think our first day when we launched, I think we only got two sales. You know, kind of continued dripping through like that for about two or three months. Um, until we, we managed to find what was working, so that was obviously the hardest because you've taken the leap. Um, we don't have any safety net and from a, a marketing perspective looking at it from um, a, a success perspective you're not getting very many sales through but it was kind of understanding that it's not necessarily because the product isn't great it's more so because um, we, we, aren't, we aren't getting enough eyes on the website we're not promoting it more efficiently enough um, it's uh, it's one of them things that takes time and traction 
And one of, the, again, the big barriers with our ultimate end user not being the buyer is that there's a, there's a big social element and proofing involved in it. Obviously, other parents for, for a new concept, something that's never been tried or done before, they want to see it working with other people. So obviously not having the success stories, not having the testimonials, not having the reviews at the start was really, really difficult. But we knew, as is with everything, with other start up you do, you have to start from somewhere. Um, obviously, you have to start um, start building that. You need a platform from which to build on. Um, so that was very, very tricky for us because we knew um, we obviously weren't going to go and write fake reviews. We weren't going to make things up. It had to be authentic. It had to be directly from our users. Um, and we had to keep it transparent so that obviously we can, uh, we can keep the trust from the parents from the outset. Mm. On the other end, what do you think that maybe you wasted too much time on early on in those first like first month of going full-time? Um, I would say trying to uh, to go the other way around and go kind of athlete-led marketing. So obviously trying to talk to uh, to athletes to uh, to market directly to them. Obviously at the time we didn't really realise that um, that these guys they don't have they don't have any money. Obviously they're they're very reliant on their parents. Um, so again a lot lot of time, lot of a lot of wasted uh, messages and uh, kind of emails put together. Um, to, to do that also with the clubs as well what we found one of the main reasons for, for coming up with the uh, w- with the concept was uh, so I used to work for a, a professional football club um, in the Premier League in Newcastle um, Newcastle United and they um, again this was some time ago almost about seven or eight years ago um, they they don't have necessarily a large provision of budget for nutrition um, it's very much down, left down to the parents. Um, they might have the odd nutrition talk here and there, um, but there's nothing. Obviously, they've got fantastic coaches, they've got fantastic facilities, um, but nothing in the way of uh, of nutrition. And one of our key, um, or what we thought was going to be a key marketing driver, was to actually partner with clubs. Um, and if things were to go to plan, we would obviously be supplying and maybe buying from us. But what we didn't realise um, is obviously I knew they didn't have any budget. Um, but the other side of it was that they, um, it's not that they're getting a lot of free um, merchandise from mass market companies, although they can't um, use it on on the the the, uh, the, the youth teams, obviously because they, they have to be over eighteen anyway. Um, because they were getting a lot for free, then us coming in and asking to, for, for for it to be paid for just wasn't wasn't viable. But again, we didn't know that until we until we went out and tried, and we would have saved a lot of time because we were giving away samples, we were giving away a product, um, and obviously we only did a very small initial um, commercial run, um, and we really needed to make make max revenue out of that in order to uh, to recoup um, cover our costs and reorder. Yeah, you mentioned that it was. Uh, there's a lot of uh, friction early on to get this thing rolling. When did things start feeling like they were getting a bit easier? Where you didn't feel like you're always pushing uphill? Was it was it after that that social proof and those reviews that started coming? Like, what made it easier to convince customers to try out your product for the first time? Well, what we um, what we ended up doing again, we uh, we never had uh, from the outset any sort of budget for marketing. So again, we had to le- we had to learn the hard way and really put the work in up front. So what we uh, what we used to do, um, what I used to do is to actually travel the country on weekends, and we go to uh, to, to large uh, meets, so large sporting meets. Um, obviously, we'd have a captive audience. The parents would be there from say eight in the morning till four or five o'clock, and we'd event. And then we'd partner with clubs separately um, and uh, deliver a kind of short 
based nutrition talks with a, with a little small plug on the product at the end. Um, so that was what we had to do to get the uh, the traction. Um, again, because from a digital perspective, we didn't have any sort of uh, direction pushing traffic to the website. Um, so obviously, once we were able to, to be there, speaking to the parents, talking to them about the product, obviously getting them to try with tasters, um, they would be pretty much our first, I don't know, say three to 500 customers. Um, and from that, obviously, they'd be return customers. So they would come to the website. We'd then be able to leverage them for reviews. Um, and obviously, that that's kind of what helped us get started. And then from there, um, obviously, all we needed really to do was to get every parent in there to tell a friend, obviously, so our customer service and the whole customer journey side of things needed to be spot on. Um, and that's how we kind of got, got traction on the back of it. Guys, so you were going in person to these events, finding your customers, the buyers, where they were at these at these games, getting them to to taste test it and be your first first customers. Like, how were, what was the pitch like? What were, what were you sell? How were you selling your products to them in person? Like, what was working for you? So we um, it was very soft approach to be fair. So we didn't go out and approach anyone. Um, we'd have flyers just on the desk for them to pick up and then we'd just pretty much be either in the foyer as they come in or as they leave um, and they would notice, notice us and just come and chat to us to be fair, ask what the product is, um, obviously a little bit about us, a little bit about myself, the concept, how we put it together. Um, again, standard questions as to what differentiates it from, uh, from mass market products um, and then again, bringing their, their, their kid over over lunch or their, uh, their athlete to come and try it and then obviously if uh, if they fit the, if they fit the criteria which again a lot of them do because they're so time starved and a lot of them they can't get them to eat the right stuff um so their diets are terrible so again having some sort of um convenient commercial solution to solve that problem um again a lot of uh, a lot of young, young athletes that's so say that the females um, I, I think there was a study done not long ago where it was between 70 and 90% were deficient in iron. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a global problem as well if, if you look into it. So just even something as simple as that, having a product that's fought, which is fortified with iron and obviously doubles up as a meal replacement and food, um, it really, really it could really see the value in it. Um, again, if you look at that, so between having an option of our, our product or, again, something from the canteen, whether it's a, a hot dog or, um, again, crisps or, or a sugary drink, um, that they could see there was, a clean, there was a very clear benefit to having it. Got it. So now eventually you were able to get to the point where you start investing more in, in marketing online. And you mentioned Facebook is one of the places that you do a lot of your marketing. What's what's the strategy on here? How do you drive traffic and customers from Facebook to your products? Yeah, so we um just to kind of tie that last story into this one. So we uh, we kind of did events um for about a year, year and a half, um, until we built the repeat custom. Um, enough so that we didn't have to do events and what we did is we thought we'd, we'd take a step back regroup and we'd start to, to align this with the original vision which was to have this business as um, as a kind of outsourced automated architecture and a digital business because uh, obviously going to uh, going to events every weekend and the setup and the travel and time involved in doing that wasn't scalable so the, as, as soon as we could and obviously, this is what we spent our time on during the week. Um, we uh, we started looking into uh, into learning how to do graphic design, obviously web design, SEO, um, all of the kind of digital strategies that feed in as funnels into the website. 
Um, one of the biggest tools for, for us, even to this day, was uh, was Facebook ads. Um, it's obviously really effective at demonstrating your, your cost per click, your click-through rates, and it's really good with metrics. Your sales made, you can look, um, obviously set your uh, set your objective, and it's really good because you can obviously really narrow it down to specific demographics, and then you can read from the data to then narrow that down to specific interests um, across across multiple different variants. Um, so there was that. There was obviously AdWords as well. Um, once, again, it's all learning. It's all something we've had to channel hours and hours and into, into putting in and trying. Um, again, that all allowed us that kind of that combination of, of digital marketing just from an advert perspective um, was what allowed us to move away from the travel um, and the event strategy and, and switch fully to, to digital. Mm-hmm. So starting with Facebook, how do you recommend someone out there get started like you if they have a limited budget? Um, I, th- the, I learned my trade from um, from a guy called Sam Ovens over in, in and I think he's based in New York, actually, one, one of his courses. It was really useful for us, um, or, or for me. And what, what I think looking at the, uh, the, the interface, it can be quite confusing. So there's a multitude of... Uh, of training, Facebook could do their own training as well, which is free on their webinars. YouTube, there's countless videos of how to use it and set it up. But it's really just having some sort of minimal budget, um, having different ad copies, um, and then just trying, just get an advert out there. Um, maybe run it for, for seven, uh, I'd say between two and seven days. Uh, analyze it, has it worked? Um, if even if it hasn't worked, if you've got one or two sales of it, look into the demographics and then draw the data from that, compile it separately in a spreadsheet, and then you've got the start of something which you can really, really dig into. Um, it, 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 it took a long time, to be fair, um, and it's still something that we're, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm masterful at. Um, it, there's, there's obviously a lot of new features that change the, the, the UI quite a bit. Um, but one of the key things that I, uh, I figured out how to do, which allowed us basically to scale to the moon, um, was to, to put an automation rule in so that the uh, the rule was to double the, the ad budget allocation um, daily if the ad was performing ahead of KPI. The KPI obviously saw, say, you want um, to, to your acquisition cost per sale to be between one and three pounds. If that's the case and the ad's performing within that range, then it would automatically double it. Um, so that obviously got us scaling from, say, spending something as small as £120 per month um, to spending literally between three and £500 per day. Um, again, you've got real-world tangible um, results that you can basically track um, and you can continue or always finding new iterations, always different angles, different ad copy, and putting some time into learning how the algorithm works as well. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do to obviously make it favor um, your, your, your copy, um, obviously, because you're always going to be competing. Um, there'll be crossover with other businesses, even if it's not for the same product. And the audiences, obviously, there's a battle for eyeballs. Um, so just really understanding how Facebook wants um, and needs that their, their users to be and enjoying things and obviously things that um, don't, don't annoy them, things that are interesting, things that are engaging. Um, so really spending some time understanding from Facebook side what they want their users to see. How do you understand it? Where did you go to learn what does what Facebook prefer? What kind of ads Facebook prefers? Um, again, a lot of internet research. Um, I think the course from Sam Ovens was really good as well. 
there's there's a lot of things as um again you can you can go down the rabbit hole you can look at things like language heuristics um you can uh, if you understand that uh, facebook the algorithm it knows what's in an image it understands the text it reads the text um and it favors obviously positive versus negative language so that there's small things like that um that again if you're competing with someone else another brand for for the same keyword for the same audience um again little incre- incremental gains of that will give you the uh, give you a little bit of a head start over them um and then always always a b testing um loads of different iterations but keeping track because it really quickly gets out of hand and um, because you can be running the same ad to I don't know, between 15 and 50 different audiences just to find the ones that work. And what you've got to do is you have to compile the ones that do work and put them in a kind of a master ad, which will run continuously and keep adding in. So it's just constant a constant cycle um, of, of iterating different, um, different keywords, different ad copy, different audiences, different demographics, different age groups and different regions as well. Got it. And you mentioned that you always constantly try to come up with new angles. Tell us more about that. Like, what do you mean by what's a what's a what's an ad angle, and how do you come up with them? Uh, I suppose it's uh, it's it's relative to your product or service. Um, obviously, whatever it is that that you're promoting or selling, you'll have features, you'll have benefits, um, and some features or benefits will be more relevant to certain audiences than others. Um, so look at ours as a, as a as an example. You can go down you can go down the convenience route. You can go down the taste route. You can go down the ingredients route. There's obviously lots of different angles that you can push a product. Um, and obviously help people to understand and the the pain points that people have, they'll resonate with different ones. So you really have to understand what it is that they're looking for. Um, and then obviously if you've got different angles and multiple, um, multiple different strategies boxed off, I mean, you, you try and find something that ticks as many of the boxes as possible. Now, the goal of each of these ads is to drive them to a product page or what do you usually, with like the conversion as being the, the, the objective, what's the, I guess, what's the goal of your ads that you set up? So um, we set our ads up for conversions. Um, so it's typically go straight to our homepage or product page. Um, obviously, once on there, it's very, very. Um, again, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of UI, a lot of design, a lot of back-end psychology that goes in when you're obviously producing your your, your website. Again, I knew absolutely none of this when I first started. It's, it's one of them things you learn as you go. Um, there's an app I think it's called Crazy Egg, which is really good to A/B test your front end on your website. Um, so you can kind of move things around. You can look at. Um, and understand the way that someone scans a, w- a website and a web page. Um, obviously, what it is that they're looking for, um, the graphics, um, the text, um, and just trying to get into that, really get into their mind and understand what it is that they're looking for and how your product best meets or kind of creates a solution for that problem. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to a paid search with uh, with Google AdWords. What's your strategy here? How did you use paid search to to grow the business? Um, again, there's there's multiple facets of, uh, of of Google. So obviously, you've got your, your analytics where you can manage everything, which is great for for, for looking at results. Um, but then you've got your Merchant Center. Um, obviously, you've got your reviews. You've got um, the, the AdWords component, and again, AdWords is is very similar to Facebook in that it is as is everything in entrepreneurship um, that that you have to do 
um, as the CEO, you have to really learn and understand um, that this is a full-time job for a paid position for someone, a professional, but it's your role to, to come in and learn and really understand it. Um, obviously, it's not necessarily to the depth um, or breadth of a, of, a, of a paid professional, but at least understanding the, the elementary basics of it and then being able to understand the difference between kind of long and short um, tail keywords, um, a keyword manager, so um, that you're looking for um, kind of key search phrases or a similar type of uh, pain points that people are going to be putting into the Google uh, into Google to search, and um, that will have some sort of relevance, so that you're not just directing anyone to your website. Um, ideally, you want qualified traffic, so those that obviously meet your uh, your ideal profile. Um, again, it's it's just spending a lot of time learning playing around, finding what works, and then obviously just trying to re- repeat what works and just get better at it over time. Mm. And for someone out there that's just getting into paid ads for the first time, how do they make the decision to choose between spending their time learning and investing in, on, in Facebook ads versus through uh, Google? Same as everything, to be fair, small scale, small scale trials. And then retrospectively looking over the metrics for the month, understanding where have your sales come from which is what is it that's driving most of the traffic to the uh, to the website and then just a basic 80 20 analysis to uh to find and put your basically use it as a to help navigate where to put your time into because if you know that you're getting um say 20 percent from um from google and 60 percent from uh from facebook that kind of gives you um a good uh good bit of guidance as to, to where your time is best spent so if you're not spending any money at all, you're just talking about like looking at how people respond to like your your organic or free uh, posts that you're putting on on Facebook versus like people discovering you through Google without you buying ads yet. Yeah, so SEO is key as well. So um, obviously understanding the keywords and search phrases that um, prospective customers are, are going to be typing in to uh to look for a product that has relevance and then obviously once you, you you've got that set up you can then kind of learn or you can gather the data and then put that together in a, co- a kind of common search phrase or sentence and then that's what you can turn into an ad because you know it has relevance to uh to getting qualified traffic over to your website again it's all small scale tests all the time and then only monetizing it once you know that you can pretty much guarantee results Got it. So you're almost doing SEO research to find the keywords and the questions that people are already typing into Google and then using that as like the ad copy for both Facebook and your Google ads? Absolutely. Um, again, having a couple of iterations of the same thing as well, um, of the same sentence, of the same phrase. And then obviously you have to link that in. So if you're looking for free, free traffic, so for, from an SEO perspective, um, it's looking at the copy that translates onto your website as well. Good way, a good efficient way of doing that, especially for those who are good at what they do and they really understand not just the product but the needs and wants of the market um, is to write blogs, to write forums and host that on the website because indirectly that's going to be getting traffic um, filtering through to your website, obviously including hyperlinks or, or deep links in there to, to the product as well. So it's very much about understanding what some of the key phrases and terminologies that your prospective customers are going to be searching in to uh, to, to obviously look for, for a product. Not necessarily look for a product sometimes as well, it's just to get a better understanding of a specific concept. Um, so again, if you can 
understand this you can obviously translate that into either web web copy via blog via via a forum um something ideally that follows a strategy of adding a lot of value first and then having some sort of deep link or hyperlink over to your product once they're on your page got it so when you are doing this research are there any particular tools or apps that you rely on for for seo research or for facebook ads or google ads like are there any tools that you use to kind of manage all of this or or do your research uh, yeah, so there's a good uh, good good website. I think uh, the majority of it is free called SEM Rush. Um, really good for uh, for looking for keywords, um, looking for for bid analysis as well, and what what you, what um, what customers are typically typing into Google to uh, to look for, and and obviously end up on your product page. Um, it's really good for for your keyword planning as well. So if you are looking to bid on specific keywords on Google for your ads, um, obviously to get you higher up the rankings. Um, that's really good and I think a lot of it's free as well got it and I want to go over some of the apps that you mentioned to us previously the first one is uh, with Crazy Egg which is a, a basically mm-hmm. a heat mapping tool where you can see your user behavior on your site so tell us a little more about that how did you use it to set, how did you set up on your site to, to, to learn more about your customers so it's really understanding what the customer journey is what it does as well um, I think it, again it's free for, for a couple of weeks for those who want to try it um, and it's it's relatively inexpensive, but it's it's a really powerful tool, um, because it allows you to see your website, whether it's on mobile or whether it's on desktop or tablet. Um, it shows you the user journey. It shows you where they're looking, what time they're spending, on which sections of the website, what they're reading, what they're not reading, where the clicks are. Um, so it really gives you a, a good understanding of what on your front end on your website is actually important and what isn't. What are people reading? Um, what, what path are they following that actually gets them to check out and so once you understand that and you've got that data um, it allows you to, to kind of retrospectively construct your website with just um, what, what's important for the, uh, for the for the consumer you're not all of a sudden you're not finding your way in the dark you've got an you know, objective results objective um, flaws uh, funnels for your, your user and you can understand how they interact with your website and once you know that you can uh, you can obviously redesign or put certain elements or even remove certain elements so that it cuts it out and it keeps them um, ideally in a really really short Amazon esque flow to get them to check out. Were there any? What were some of the the largest or biggest change or the, not even big change? What were some of the small or big changes that had the most uh, biggest impact on conversion rates on your site? Um, I would say one of one of the largest things that we did. Um, was um, offer off, again offering a lot of value. Um, so when we first started, what what we did is we basically we we gave them um, our, our product um, and just a thank you card, and, and that was it. So obviously not 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 great. It's obviously a premium product, and it is quite expensive as well. And so what we we decided to do was give before we get so. Now, for every first order, um, they get a free shaker. They get um, either 48 or 24-track postage as standard. They get a free high-quality branded tea. They also get a nutrition guide, branded stickers, and a scoop. Um, and what, it, uh, what, we, what we found is that it increases the perceived value of orders, and obviously it works to offset the price. So obviously they're getting a lot more for their money. And this had a really, really big impact on sales. Um, and it, it kind of just goes to show that sales, it is a reciprocal relationship based on value with customers and basically ensuring that they get maximum value for every penny that they spend. 
guys. Basically, build up that perceived value and not just sell your product by itself. Include like a bunch of different kind of bonuses, basically, to make it uh, increase again the, the exchange that they're getting for for the dollar for the for the money they're giving you. Now, you mentioned you also use an app for pre-orders. How, how does the how does the pre-ordering work for your site? How do you build up demand for for pre pre-orders? Yeah, sure. So um, the the app is um, is on Shopify. It's called Pre-order Now. So one of our biggest problems, obviously, at the start, we didn't have much cash. Um, so we we were ordering quite small volumes. So your scale of economy at that level is very small, which means your margin is very small. So what we had to do is we had to sell out probably between eighty and ninety percent of our product before we had enough residual cash to reorder. So. Uh, our lead times are typically between six and eight weeks, so almost two months. So that potentially meant going um, that same am- amount of time or period without having any stock in. Obviously, it would generally be of a specific variant of the three that we have. Um, so it's, it was a problem for us because there was a big cash flow gap. So we wouldn't get any sales for that, uh, again, up to two month period. It takes that long. Um, because it's, uh, they have to kind of special order in our ingredients with them being so high grade. And also we go through a separate process of batch screening with a company called Informed Sport. Um, we, uh, we, we, again, a lot of our users um, are elite athletes, youth athletes. Um, so again, it's, some, it's kind of an extra layer of assurance for them that there's no banned substances in the product. Um, so because, because of this, um, it caused us quite quite a bit of trouble. So having the, the capacity, because we were constantly oversubscribed, obviously once we got the wheels turning with sales, um, having the pre-order function allowed us to let the customer know real time, this is how many we've, we've, re- we've got on order, this is how many is available, this is when it's going to be available. Um, if you want to reserve yours now, um, then you've got the opportunity to do so. And it, basically, it, it, it'll take uh, it'll take it as if it's a normal sale through the website, and we'll just keep it to one side or have it earmarked when we've uh, obviously got everything delivered um, for them to have. So it benefits the customer um, because they know that okay, they might have to wait a couple of weeks, but at least they know that it's reserved and we're not going to sell out again straight away. And obviously, helps us for, for cash flow. It means we can basically continue to sell whilst even out of stock. God. And you also do um, recurring orders with the bold recurring order recurring orders app. But I didn't see any subscription program, at least uh, on your site or over after bat. Like, how has the subscription program worked? So, again, this is uh, relatively new. So we uh, we used to have a customer rewards a loyalty scheme with the app called Marcelo on the back end of Shopify, um, which basically re- rewarded customers based on their, their, their spend. Um what we wanted to do was to have a subscription service built into the back end of the website um, so that it has a lot of benefits for us. Um, and that obviously we have monthly recurring revenue. It also allows us to have um, kind of live inventory um, so we can kind of pr- project at which point based on the current volume when we need to reorder so we can kind of preempt that. Um, it offers a lot of value to the customer as well because they can kind of just they can just set it and leave it. Um, we don't lock them in. We give them full control if they want to skip an order, if they want to cancel it, if they want to change the flavor. We give them full autonomy over that. And obviously it saves them having to, to actually physically come. I know it's not much to do on the phone or on the website, but it's still a task that they have to do on top of their, their already busy schedules to, to, to reorder. So, again, it was one of them things that we uh, we knew we could we could add value. 
Um, and what it allowed us to do as well is to actually reduce the price of the product to encourage subscriptions. So obviously there's more benefit once again to, to subscribers. Awesome. So Youth Sport Nutrition is the is the brand, is a company. I'll leave this last question. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you learned last year that you are putting into effect this year? I would say pretty much going down the uh, the, the same route I said before in, in that um, we've kind of had it all always, to be fair. We've always kind of give talks or we've kind of been in front and allowed them to taste. We've given them kind of free advice um, or really, really good customer service. And it's that customer service and the, the the takeaway is that you always have to give more or before you get um again offering value whether that's just in the form of a blog whether that's um informal advice um again whether it's um given um because the the brand aside from the product is also multifaceted so this feeds back into the fact that we never really had uh, any sort of marketing budget um, so we run a free webinar now, which saves us having to go physically to clubs. That's run by our nutritionist, our in-house nutritionist, Emmy. Um, we have a club partner scheme where we give um, quarterly free bundle packs to the clubs in return for affiliation. Um, we also kind of have sponsored athletes and future programs where we give before. And then obviously that, that reciprocates in turn because it ends up being inadvertent marketing for us. So it's always to try and give as much value as you can to the customer. Obviously, understand what the needs are, what's going to add the most value to them. Um, and then obviously only ask once you've provided some sort of value. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experience, Lou. No problem, Felix. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. Shopify.